All right. Everybody ready to go? Nobody's tired, right? Did you eat more than one burger? Because I'll know here in a minute. <laughs> I was at a church uh, a couple years ago. I probably shouldn't tell you this because you feel like you can fall out. But uh, they had wonderful church, very hospitable. And it was a southern church. And so southern church, they had like a buffet for lunch. Right. It was like casseroles galore. And we ate for about an hour and everybody stuffed themselves. And we came back together to talk afterwards. And I swear half the crowd fell asleep. <laughs> I mean, it was, they were struggling so hard. So anyway, yeah, but glad you guys came back. And we're going to dive right into this topic. It is a biggie. We're kind of laying the foundation, why it's important, why we give answers, why the passion behind what we do what, and why we do it. And this one is going to be a really big talk because this talk deals with an issue that so many Christians struggle with, and that is the issue of the age of the earth. It's very often as I talk at different churches, different venues, and we talk about evolution being silly, and uh, it's not biblical. We kind of give refute the idea like we did last talk. And most Christians are on board with that. Yeah, that's great. All right, wonderful. You get to the issue of the age of the earth, and we start saying, well, the earth, as the Bible clearly implies, is roughly around 6,000 years old. Guess the reaction we get most of the time. Whoa, you done gone crazy now, right? We're all good with the evolution stuff, but this is that 6,000 year stuff, really? And so we're going to dive into that. And as we talked about earlier, we know this is so important because all this deals with biblical authority. Can we trust the word of God? Is it right about history and we can trust about morality and salvation? It's an authority issue. And that's why we're passionate as a ministry. We've got the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, all those different things. Again, as we said last session, to give answers, to get to the answer. Defending the faith, standing on God's word. This book is true about everything. Put your faith in Christ. That's the heartbeat. That's the focus. So that's why we're passionate. Defending biblical authority. But why, oh why, are the secularists passionate? Because, oh my goodness, they are zealous for this idea of millions of years. And here's why I suggest up front at least one of their major motivations. This picture. Remember, I showed it earlier, as we talked about last session, there's no observable evidence for macroevolution in the present. Uh, the only evidence for macroevolution is in the artwork, right? That's it. It's the only place we find it. And here's the thing. If you choose to believe in evolution, actually evolutionism, you can even call it, it's religious, then you have to explain how everything came from nothing and life from non-life, information from non-living matter. All of those things go against known laws of science. So then how can you still believe in this idea if you want to adhere to it? Who or what is the hero that will swoop in and save your theory from contrary evidence? The answer, time. Time is the hero. This is why they're so zealous for this idea. George Wald, well-known professor, said this, talking about evolution. Time, in fact, is the hero of the plot. What we regard as impossible on the basis of human experience, is meaningless here. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, and the possible probable, and the probable virtually certain. One only has to wait, and time itself performs the what? Miracles. I'm glad they use that word. That's actually what they need. They really do. But compare this idea to the woman who kissed the frog and got the prince. (laughs) Remember that story, right? Does not happen very often in real life. How many of you ladies got your husband by kissing a frog? Anybody? One, two, three. Three of you. Okay. Just three. People looking around. Uh, 
No, but according to evolutionary thinking, you know, this idea really should happen all the time because in evolutionary thinking, life came from non-life and evolved first into something like the amoeba, which evolved eventually into the frog, which eventually evolved into, well, the prince. It is the same fairy tale. It really is. With one key difference. If the frog turns to the handsome prince very quickly, we know that's silly, right? But if the frog turns into the handsome prince very slowly, that is modern science. The difference? A super-duper magical ingredient called millions of years. Time itself is the hero of the plot. This is why they are so passionate about this idea. And don't take my word for it. Listen to Bill Nye, the science guy, quote-unquote, talk about this very issue. He talks about evolution using emojis. Hi, Bill Nye here, explaining evolution with emoji. Take a look at this one. It's a molecule. And a molecule has just happened. Look at any asteroid. It's loaded with amino acids, carbon and oxygen and oxygen. Well, somehow, probably with energy from the sun, these molecules hooked together and accidentally found ways to reproduce themselves, the same way crystals reproduce if you leave them alone for a while. Anyway, these self-replicating molecules could not make perfect copies of themselves, and the imperfections that helped them make more copies stayed there, kept getting reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. And pretty soon you had complicated things like bacteria. And then you got multiple bacteria becoming multiple, multiple multicellular organisms like poison ivy plants and barnacles and sea jellies and even my old boss. And the key to this is time, 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 time. People used to think the earth was a few thousand years old. Then they realized it was at least a few hundreds of millions of years old. Well, now, using radioactivity, we can tell you that the earth is 4.54 billion years old. A lot can happen in four and a half billion years. Get a mirror, take a look at yourself. We are all a result of evolution. Not really sure about the last example. Uh, I'm devolving. I don't know about you guys. As I get older, things are getting worse, not better. But that's not the point. The point is time. Time is the key. Time can explain life from non-life, information from non-living matter. It can explain away evolution. Time is the hero. So how much time are we talking about here? Well, from a secular perspective, the Earth is around 4.5 billion years old. And the universe is around 14 billion years old. That's from the secular worldview. But what if we start with the Bible? What if we build our thinking from the eyewitness account of the creator himself as revealed in his word? Well, we start there. We look in the Bible and the plain natural reading of Genesis is that God created everything in six days, roughly 6,000 years ago. And you say crazy, right? It's a different idea. People say, well, how do you know that? Where do you get that from? Those the Bible say the earth. <coughs> Excuse me, one second. What was that? Time's up. <laughs> Does the Bible say the earth is 6,000 years no old? And it doesn't. And that's good. If it did, it'd be wrong the very next page, right? Or the next day. Now, the Bible gives us something better. It gives us a birth certificate of sorts. So we can calculate the age. You say, really? Where? Those biblical genealogies, those biblical family trees, those things you love to read like you're trying to go to sleep, Right? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so will just knock you right out. Well, some of those 
In Genesis 5 and 11, they come with dates with them. Like Adam lived to X amount of age, he had his sons. Adam was 130, he had Seth. Seth was 105, had Enos, keep going down the line. You can add these up, it's not hard to do. It's pretty basic math to get a general estimate for the age of the earth. So, from Adam to Abraham, it's roughly 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus, roughly 2,000 years. And from Christ to us today, it's roughly 2,000 years. So the earth is roughly around 6,000 years old. Or you could say made around 4,000 uh, B.C. Now, I don't think you can be exact and say 4,004 uh, B.C. at 8 o'clock in the morning, right? We do know that Adam was made in the afternoon because it was just before Eve. But other than that, you... <laughs> I know, that's bad. All right, but anyway, you get the idea. And, so, and people say, okay, well, I get that, those genealogies. That makes sense. But, Brian, how do you know, know those days... And Genesis are regular 24-hour days. How do you know? And that's a good question. And the answer is a fun word called exegesis. Say that with me. Exegesis. And this is how we're supposed to read God's word. To exegete means to read out of. It means we look at something as the authority, and we let the text tell us what it means based on its context. In other words, this tells us what it means based on its context. We read out of this text. You see, people ask me all the time, they say, well, Brian, couldn't God have used evolution in millions of years? My answer will surprise you. The answer is yes. He's God. Amen? He can do whatever he wants. The question is not what God could have done. The question is simply this. What did God say he did? And then do we trust it? And actually, real science confirms it, too. That's cool to see as well. But we'll go through this. What did he say he did? So what was the context? Say, if we read the Bible exegetically, how do we understand those days in Genesis chapter 1? And so, we're going to let God tell us what he means by the word day, and then we're going to look at the context. And the word day, in its Hebrew equivalent, which is yom, uh, does have multiple meanings. And again, that's not weird. Most words have multiple meanings depending on context. And the word day does have multiple meanings. We see that even in English, like this sentence. Back in my father's day, it took 10 days to drive across America during the day. You got the word day three different times. means something different each time. And you know, right, based on the what? Context. Context determines meaning. We're used to doing that all the time. The first time it's used is back to a period of time, my father's day, a period of time. It took 10 days. That's the 24-hour cycle of the day. The last reference, during the day, the daylight portion of the day. And we understand context determines meaning. Or think about this sentence, another good illustration. Johnny, who was sitting in the back, with his back against the back of the chair, said he'd be right back. You got the word back, means something different every single time, all four times, means something different. How do you know? They're different colors. It, it helps, all right? But because based on the what? Context. Context determines meaning. That is a common function of language. And we do the same thing with the Bible. But before we do that, here's what's really interesting to me from a Christian perspective. We have the word day used in the Bible over 2,300 times. 2,301 times to be exact. The word day is used 2,301 times in the Bible. And we are confident as Christians. We know what it means every single time it's used, except in Genesis 1. Is the context really that confusing? So let's take a look at it. Let's look at the, how the word day should be interpreted. So we're going to look at how the word day is interpreted in context outside of Genesis 1 and then apply those contextual clues to Genesis 1 to see if we can figure this out because so many Christians and Christian leaders say, oh, it's just too confusing. We can't know. 
and try to squeeze in a man's ideas. So what does the word day mean based on context? So we'll look at how the word day is interpreted outside of Genesis in the Old Testament and apply those contextual clues to Genesis 1 to try to figure this out. And I found this to be very helpful. So anytime we see the word day in the Old Testament, and it's accompanied by a number, like during the first day or on the third day, all 410 times, it means a regular 24-hour day. Anytime we see evening and or morning together in a sentence without the word day, it means a literal 24-hour day. Anytime we see evening or morning with the word day, it means a literal 24-hour day. And anytime we see nights with day, every single time it's used in the Old Testament, it means a literal 24-hour day. So when does the word day mean a regular day in the Old Testament? Well, anytime you see the word day accompanied by a number, anytime you see evening and or morning with or without the word day, anytime you see night with day, every single time it means a literal 24-hour day. So we do know when day means day. With all that being said, it must not be written that clearly in Genesis 1 because so many Christian leaders and Christians today say it's just too confusing. We can't know. So let's apply these clues to Genesis 1 to see if we can get maybe an inkling to kind of clear up this confusion. You guys ready? This is going to get technical. Here we go. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, the evening and the morning were the first day. I am confused. Right? What about the next days? Evening and morning were the second day, evening and morning the third day, evening and morning the fifth day, evening and morning the sixth day, or fifth day and the sixth day, evening and morning, day, number, every single time. It's almost like God knew we would need help with this later on. Right? <laughs> I'm going to make this as clear as possible based on the context. And, you know, it's interesting. If the word day was written like this anywhere else in the Bible, no one would question what it means. We only question it in Genesis. Why? Because we're trying to squeeze man's ideas into God's word. That's why. And on top of this, there are a lot of really good Hebrew words that mean an indefinite period of time. The author could have used it if that's, if that's what he wanted to say, but he used none of those. He used the Hebrew word yom to mean a regular 24-hour day based on that context. It is so clear. And if we somehow missed it in Genesis 1, well, then we get a reaffirmation of this truth in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 11. We read, for in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and the sea. And how much? All that is in them. He made everything and everything in it in six days. Now, we agree that the Bible is the inspired word of God, correct? This is the inscribed word of God. God wrote this on a rock with his own finger. And he doesn't stutter, right? It's very, very clear. Those are regular days. And uh, we know those tablets are legit because I saw Charlton Heston bring them down off the mountain. <laughs> That's another old reference. Kids are like, what in the world? Who is that? Anyway, don't worry about it. Um, no. I heard a professor once say this, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up with nonsense. That is so true. So, here's the deal. If it is clear from the text and the context, and we'll talk about other issues later on, that those are regular 24-hour days, then why don't many Christians believe it? Many don't today. And actually, for many, this is the, the, the gate to compromise that opens first. Why are they rejecting the Bible's clear teaching on this? Guys, I suggest because the culture's thinking has invaded the church. And we've embraced a compromised view, whether we recognize it or not. In a real sense, we've been duped, we've been brainwashed, and we're trusting man's word over God's word, whether we recognize it or not. 
And someone say, okay, Abraham, but wait. I mean, hasn't science proven millions of years? Don't we have to believe in millions of years? That's a fair question. So let's talk about that one really quick. To answer that question, first we have to define the word science. All right, so the word science, it comes from two Latin words. It means to know. So it's literally just knowledge. And most of the time, though, when we think of science, we're thinking of the scientific method, right? A method used to accumulate knowledge. And so, uh, but you can do this in a couple of different ways. And so you can break that category. You can break science, the scientific method into two basic categories. Here's going to be the first one I suggest. Something you might call observational or operational science. And this will be something you might call here and now science. It's done in the present. It's observable, testable, repeatable, and falsifiable. You think about a guy in a laboratory, and he mixes chemical A with chemical B, gets result C, accumulates knowledge, and makes technology and medicines from that. That's what we see. That's observable science. And by the way, we all agree on this. It's only possible because the Bible is true. Think about it. God made not only the tangible world, he made the intangible laws of nature that don't randomly change, which is why he can do science in the first place. He holds it all together. That's why science is even possible. But, so we all agree on this, not a problem. But here's the key. Operation does not explain origination. Those are two very different things. You see, when you're trying to figure out what happened in the unseen past to bring about what it is you see today, that's a different kind of science altogether. You might call it origins or historical science. That's when you look at stuff in the present, you interpret it and make a guess about the unseen past based on your starting assumptions. And here's why historical science is so different from uh, observational science or operational science. Here's why it's so different. It's because the past Is it here or is it gone? It's gone. Can you repeat the Big Bang if it ever happened? No. The past is gone. The past is not observable, testable, repeatable, or falsifiable. That makes historical science a very different thing altogether than operational science. And again, ultimately comes down to worldview. Which set of starting assumptions do you build your thinking from? Do you trust God's word? And use biblical history to explain the world around us, or do we reject this? Trust man's guess as our starting point. Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. Another story here, reminding of the elderly gentleman who thought his wife was going deaf. He was sure of it. So one night he snuck up behind her, about ten feet away, and he whispered, "Can you hear me, honey?" Nothing. He got a few feet closer. Can you hear me, honey? Nothing. He got right behind her. Can you hear me, honey? To which she responded, for the third time, yes. Wasn't her problem, right? (laughs) In a very similar way, even though the evolutionists will claim, you Christians, it's your Bible that has the problem, it turns out to be their own worldview that has led them astray. So with that in mind, let me show you where the idea of millions of years actually originated from. I found this to be very helpful for a lot of Christians on this issue. You You look at this textbook, and it tells us that before radiometric dating was available, Many people thought the earth was thousands of years old. It's true. Did you realize that? Up until about the late 1700s, early 1800s, most scientists believed the Bible and thought the earth was only thousands of years old. So what did they find to change their minds? It must have been pretty phenomenal, right? It must have been some huge scientific find. What did they find to change their minds? I'll give you some hints. It was not new rocks or new fossils. They had the same rocks and the same fossils. It was not radiometric dating. That comes in the early 1900s and is wildly inconsistent based on atheistic assumptions. So what did they find to change their minds? Answer, nothing. 
It's a trick question. They found nothing, at least nothing tangible. But what they did get was a new worldview. Let me show you what happened. The textbook continues. They thought the earth was only thousands of years old, but in the 1700s, James Hutton, he estimated the earth was much older. And he used the principle of uniformitarianism. Big word, bold print. That'll be on the test, all right? And this principle states that the earth processes occurring today are similar to those that occurred in the past. In other words, the way things happen now is the way they've always happened in the unseen past. Long, slow, gradual processes, no divine intervention. Notice they're assuming the religion of naturalism. He observed that the processes that changed the rocks and land around him were very slow. So he inferred, another good word there might be he assumed, they've been just as slow throughout Earth's history. He then hypothesized, what's a good word for that? guessed it took more than a few thousand years to form the layers of rock around him and erode the mountains so notice hudson got his conclusion of millions of years not based on any new evidence same rocks same fossils but a different interpretation based on the assumption of something called uniformitarianism the present is the key to the past the way things happen now is the way they've always happened no divine intervention just long slow gradual processes based in the religion of naturalism also called atheism Actually, Hutton had rejected the Bible before he even engaged the evidence. Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. But then his work had a huge influence on a guy named Charles Lyell. Him and others, by the way. There were more than just James Hutton. There were others. But and Charles Lyell took that principle of uniformitarianism, and he applied it to the rock layers and fossils. And Hutton argued, you know what? We don't need Noah's flood to explain all these rock layers and fossils. We can use this idea of uniformitarianism. Natural processes can't explain all these things. As a matter of fact, he argued natural processes can't explain all the rock layers and all the fossils if we only give natural processes enough what? Time. And this is the origin of the idea of millions of years. Again, notice no new evidence. Same rocks, same fossils, different interpretation based on a different worldview. And what was the motivation in this shift in worldview? This is important. Lau said his goal in a letter to a friend was to free science from Moses. Translation, get God out of science. Because again, not a head issue, it's a heart issue, and then becomes a worldview issue. So you kind of see this progression that happens in the late, late 1700s. Hutton and others jump on the scene, and they cause people to doubt the need for creator around 6,000 years ago. Lyle takes that same principle, applies it to geology. Yeah, we don't need Noah's flood for that. You can explain that with natural processes. And then Lyle's work had a huge influence on a medical school dropout who was about to take, take a trip on the Beagle before he signed up to be part of the clergy. He's going to be a naturalist. Who was that guy? Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin, as he made that trip on the Beagle, he looked around and he said, you know what? Maybe we, we can explain all the variation of living things with only natural processes if we just give those processes enough time. Apply the principle there as well. And now we don't even need a creator at all. We see this progressive takeover of the science world at this time with this worldview. And now this naturalistic worldview dominates the scientific community. And so we see quotes like this one. Dr. Scott Todd from Kansas State University. He says, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such an, an hypothesis, hypothesis is excluded from science, because it is not naturalistic. It must be naturalistic. Or this quote 
I won't read the whole thing, it'll just take too long, but Richard Lewontin, Harvard Geneticist, basically says, it's not that science requires us to believe in materialism. No, that's our starting assumption, and we use that assumption to make materialistic explanations for what we're looking at. He goes on to say at the bottom, and this materialism is an absolute. Why? We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Not a head issue. It's a heart issue. And since guys like that write the majority of our textbooks, we see quotes like this in our textbooks, even in Christian school textbooks, homeschooling curriculum, watch out. Science is restricted to a search for natural causes for natural phenomenon. Supernatural explanations simply lie outside the bounds of science. Why? Naturalism is the new religion of our culture today. Hitler said this. If you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, the people will start to what? believe it. And so we see this shift really starting in the early 1800s away from God's word as the foundation to how man's words become the ultimate authority. And Christians hear me on this so important to get. We should not be surprised that secular scientists get wildly different conclusions about the past. They're starting with the opposite assumptions about the past. Polar opposites. We start with this as our foundation. God's word is true. This history explains all things. They're starting with the opposite assumption. They've rejected this altogether, and they interpret those things with a totally different worldview. That's why their conclusions are so wrong. It should not be surprising. And so nowadays, they take naturalistic assumptions and apply those assumptions to every observation, whether it's rocks or fossils or red isotopes or distant starlight or whatever. I'll give you one example of how they do this. Show you a little clip from the DVD. Check this out. Great little teaching tool, six mini DVDs. This one's around three minutes long. It's about radiometric dating. A lot of good stuff in here. Hold on tight, but pay attention to the main theme of wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions as the video goes. Here you go. Nearly every textbook in science magazine teaches that the Earth is billions of years old, and the primary dating method used for determining this is what is called radioisotope dating, or radiometric dating. Now, this is a reliable method for measuring absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth, right? Huh. First off, many scientists now regard the age of the Earth to be between 4.55 and 4.6 billion years old. Okay, so if this method is reliable and accurate, why the 50 million year discrepancy? That seems like a lot, but let's get into some details here and see what's going on. Keep in mind that there's all kinds of scientific jargon on this topic, and so we'll just present a very straightforward, simplified version of the process. Radiometric dating is the process of estimating the ages of rocks based on the decay of radioactive elements in them. Basically, there are certain kinds of atoms in nature that are unstable and spontaneously decay into other kinds of atoms. For instance, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps until it becomes the stable element called lead. The original element is called the parent element, and the end result is called the daughter element. Radioisotope dating is commonly used to date igneous rocks, rocks which formed when hot molten material cooled and solidified. The dating clock started when the rock cooled. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intense heat forced any gaseous daughter elements to escape. It is assumed that once the rock cooled, no more atoms escaped, and any daughter element now found in the rock is a result of radioactive decay since that rock formed. The decay rate is measured in terms of half-life. That is, the length of time it takes half of the remaining atoms of a radioactive parent element to decay. Now, of course, that can be measured in a laboratory, and it is assumed that since we know the decay rate, we can calculate backwards and come up with the age of the rock. But is that all there is to it? Here's where it gets tricky. It's true we can measure a decay rate using observational science, 
But there's another kind of science that is required to accurately calculate dates for rocks, and that is what we call historical science. Historical science deals with the things in the past, and therefore it cannot be repeated and tested. Dating methods require both types of science, because in order to get accurate rock dates, one would have to accurately know both the decay rate and the initial conditions of the rock sample, right? Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the ages of rocks. There are assumptions involved. For instance, how do we know what the initial conditions were in the rock sample? How do we know the amounts of parent or daughter elements now in that sample haven't been altered by other processes in the past? How does someone know the decay rate has remained constant since the rock formed? The answer is, they don't. Let's simplify here and talk about a typical hourglass. Let's say you walk into a room and you see an hourglass with sand at the top and sand at the bottom, and some sand sprinkling from the top chamber to the bottom. Well, observational science would allow us to see and measure the sand, and then calculate how long the hourglass has been running, right? We could make our sand measurements and then calculate when the hourglass was turned over, right? Well, those calculations could be wrong because we may have failed to consider some major assumptions. Like, was there any sand at the bottom when the hourglass was turned over? Has any sand been added or taken out of the hourglass? Has the sand always been falling at a constant rate? Since we did not observe the initial conditions when the hourglass started, and we haven't been watching the sand all the time since then, we must make assumptions. All three of those assumptions can affect our time calculations. Now, of course, there's more to understanding all of this, but enough said. Did you get all that? <laughs> You don't know all the, you have to know all the details, but just hold on that core idea of wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. The hourglass is a wonderful example of that. And recognize when you see isotopes in the present, we don't see age, we see them in the present, we make interpretations. And so it's these wrong assumptions that the secularists use that gives them such wrong conclusions about the past. And it's not neutral. Everyone comes to the evidence with a worldview, it's impossible not to. And so we've got to keep that in mind. So here's the deal. Even if radiometric dating worked perfectly, it would not prove millions of years because of the assumptions that drive it. But guys, it's the opposite of perfect. A few examples of this. Using carbon-14 dating, part of a mammoth dated to be 29,000 years old. Another part of the same mammoth was dated to be 44,000 years old. That's a slow birth. All right. Freshly killed seal was dated to be 1,300 years old, off by more than 1,000%. We're looking at other dating methods like potassium-argon dating. We can actually use this in a very effective way, see if it's accurate. Uh, this dates rocks that were uh, lava flows that hardened into stone. And sometimes we know when the lava flows occurred, it's recorded in history, so we know when the rocks formed. So we actually historically know when certain rocks formed, so we can test this dating method with these rocks to see if it's accurate. So let's see if it's accurate. So an eruption in Sicily that happened in 122 B.C. produced rocks around 2,000 years ago. They were dated with potassium-argon dating to be 170 to 330,000 years old. Actual age was 2,000. That's close, right? Northern Sicily, 1972, roughly 50 years ago. Lava flows hardened into stone there. They were dated to be 210,000 to 490,000 years old. Ironically, the younger lava flows were older than the older lava flows. Well, no, that works out, all right, but definitely not even close. Over in New Zealand, rocks formed from lava flows there in 1954, around 70 years ago, 70-ish. They were dated to be 3.3 to 3.7 million years old. Actual age, around 70. Guys, it's not even close. Or this one over in Hawaii, 1959, lava flows happened there. They were dated to be 1.7 to 15.3 million years old. Huge margins of error, not even close, not even the ballpark. 
And so we've got to keep that in mind as we look at these particular things. And actually, you can get about any date you want for any rock you want, depending on which dating method you use and how many times you date the rock. Or this. Anybody around when Mount St. Helens erupted back in 1980? Anybody remember that? A few of you do, all right. What erupted back in 1980 produced some rocks as a result of that eruption, and they were dated using potassium argon dating, and they were dated to be 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. Now, first of all, that's a huge margin of error, over 700%. That's quite a bit of margin of error. And then also, this will tell us that, you know what, if you're around in 1980, you're a lot older than you thought you were. <laughs> just throwing that out there. And then the actual age of the rocks was actually just 12 years of age. Again, not even close. And it's interesting, we can kind of keep going with this, but when we date rocks of known age, we can tell radiometric dating does not work. But then when we date rocks of unknown age, it's assumed that it does work. Not very consistent, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And actually, on top of this, did you realize most of the dating methods today that you can use, even using the secularist's own assumptions, still point to a very young earth consistent with the Bible, real problems for evolutionary thinking? This is so cool to see. I do a whole talk on this. We'll go through a few of these fairly quickly. A couple examples. Comets. They're big old muddy snowballs out in space. And even the biggest comets with the longest orbits should not last more than 100,000 years. Every time they pass the sun, they lose some of their material. Well, then that begs the question, where the, why are there comets still literally everywhere? Because within the secular worldview, comets formed at the formation of the solar system 4.5 billion years ago. And there's no observed source of replenishment. They should have been gone a long time ago, yet they're literally everywhere. Strong confirmation of the biblical perspective. Or this one. I don't know if you know this, but we are losing the moon. Around two inches a year, it's leaving us. Now, if the moon is moving away from us, that means in the past it used to be what? Closer. Who can figure this out with no help at all? All right? Everybody got this. So it used to be closer. Go back a few thousand years ago. Would not be that big of a problem. But go back a few million years ago. The moon will be close enough to the earth. It will destroy the earth twice a day. I think once will be enough. Right? You go back a billion years ago and the moon would run into the earth. So would that mean the earth got mooned? I don't know what to do with that. I can only tell that joke if my wife is not here. Uh, sorry. All right. Anyway, the Earth's magnetic field's getting weaker. We've measured this consistently all over the world, mind you, for the past 150 years. It's consistently decreased. It's decreased by 10% in the last 150 years. Now, if it's getting weaker in the past, it used to be stronger. That's pretty straightforward. Go back around 7,000 years ago. It would be around 32 times stronger than it is now. Maybe that explains some of the Garden of Eden-like conditions we had before the flood. But then go back just 20,000 years ago, due to exponential increase, the magnetic field would be so strong it would liquefy the earth, which I think would be bad. Or you might have heard we mentioned earlier, carbon-14 dating proves the earth is millions of years old. Actually, it's one of the best confirmations of a young earth. People say, how? Well, here's what happens. Carbon-14, it's unstable, changed back to nitrogen-14, and it forms in our atmosphere. And then here's what happens. Uh, plants absorb it. Animals eat the plants, and we eat animals and plants, so all living things contain some carbon-14 inside of them. Remember, it's unstable. So all of you contain a little bit, contain a little bit of carbon-14 inside of you. That means all of you are slightly unstable, all right? <laughs> but you knew that already, okay. Here's what's cool. When a critter dies, it stops taking in carbon-14, and the carbon-14 it has inside of it starts to decay back to nitrogen-14. Now, here's the key. Carbon-14 decays so quickly 
that within a hundred thousand years after the creature's death, we should find absolutely no detectable carbon-14. None. So what that means is if there's anything over supposedly a hundred thousand years of age, we should find no detectable carbon-14. None. So what do we find on organic remnants in all the rock layers over and over and over and over again with real science? In all those remnants and all those rock layers, we find large amounts of carbon-14 still intact. We find it even in coal seams, all three major coal seams, upper, middle, lower. We find, it even, we find carbon-14 in diamonds, which is astounding because you cannot contaminate a diamond. And according to the secularists, diamonds take billions of years to form. Unless you're Superman, you can make one in seven seconds. Anybody remember the old Superman where he squeezed a piece of coal that became a diamond? And it was pre-cut because Superman's bad. Anybody remember that? Kind of a different thing, or old Superman. But anyway, no, we find carbon-14 still in these diamonds. Great evidence there, most thousands of years old, does not fit the evolutionary narrative. But, of course, you don't want to hear about any of that. Or observations like this. We can measure how fast the desert grows, a process called desertification. And according to the latest measurements, the largest desert in the world, the Sahara Desert, is roughly around 4,000 years old based on present growth rates. Guys, i got a question. Why is the largest desert in the world plausibly 4,000 years old? I've got a theory. Just hold on for a minute. We'll come back to that. Here's another observation. Largest coral reef in the world. Over in Australia, part of it was destroyed back in World War II. They watched the reef grow back for 20 years. It was a government project. They said at this rate, this entire reef could have grown in just 4,200 years. It grew back so quick. Why is the largest coral reef in the world plausibly 4,200 years old? I've got a theory about that. Just hold on. We'll get to it. Um, the Sequoias over in California. Anybody been there? Just took my first trip there about a month ago. My wife had the best time. It was so cool to see that. There's us in front of one of the trees, General Sherman, of course. This is as close as I get to being a tree hugger. Had that just to show. All right. <laughs> And the size of the tree. I had a great time that day. But sequoias have no natural enemies aside from huge natural catastrophes. Uh, and the only thing that can really kill them besides that are, are men. And yet we find no sequoias over 4,000 years of age. Why is that? Guys, I've got a theory. Why do we find carbon-14 in all these organic remnants, largest desert, plausibly 4,000 years old, comets still around, so forth and so on? Why do we observe all these things? I've got a theory. And here's my theory. I think around 6,000 years ago, God created everything. And around 4,400 years ago, there was a flood. And then after that flood, desert starts to form, so there's a coral reef. That's why I find copper 14 of those remnants. That's why comets are still around, so forth and so on. Really fits the evidence really, really, really well. Wonderful confirmation of all these things. And Occam's razor screams, this is a great explanation. And here's a key. The secularists are wrong. The present is not the key to the past. Uniformitarianism is not the answer. There's only one infallible dating method. It is called the Word of God. You see, the Bible is the key to the past, the present, and the future. It's the key to all things. Why? Because it's God's Word. He gets everything right. And even though most dating methods point to a very young earth in alignment with what the Bible teaches, you won't hear about none of those. Why? It does not fit the narrative and they need their millions of years. Time itself is the hero. They must have their hero to save their theory from contrary evidence. And I think what's happened can be summarized nicely by this little cartoon of, of three brothers. 
all of whom love to have bananas in their cereal. And one morning, the youngest brother, he got up first, he got the last banana, and he was so happy, all right? And so the two older brothers come down, and they see him, they're like, hey, is that the last banana? He's like, yeah, and I got it. All right, he was so happy, right? But if you have siblings, you know how this works. They don't ask you for anything. They either beat you up and take it, right, or trick you out of it somehow. And they said, oh, brother, hey, do you even know how bananas are made? He said, no, he's only five. It's been shown in laboratory tests. The brain does not start working until you're 20. Um, <laughs> uh, he said, no. They said, well, brother, there are these spiders in Africa. And when they die, they're really big spiders. When they die, their legs kind of fold down and mold grows all around their legs. And bananas, they're actually old, moldy spider legs. <laughs> he said, no, they're not. You guys are lying to me. You just want my banana. And they said, no, brother, it's true. If you cut the banana open, you'll see the black spots where the legs used to be. Uh, it's, it's mean, but it's clever, right? <laughs> you see, they understood a very important truth, and that is this. If you want to sell a lie, the best way is to incorporate some what? Truth. That's what we do with rat poison. Did you realize that rat poison is 99.995% good food? It is. It's the point zero zero five percent the rat really needs to be worried about. All right. And same thing happening today, guys. There's a whole lot of good operational science making amazing things, making our technology, making the medicines to help cure diseases, a lot of amazing things like that. But it's the poison of uniformitarianism based on the religion of naturalism that's causing so many to get the wrong conclusions about the unseen past. And again, here's the thing. We expect the nonbeliever to start with man's word. That's their foundation. That's true. But here's the problem. Much of the church, many Christians, have swallowed this same poison. I mean, undermine biblical authority. Let me show you what happened. You see, in the early 1800s, this idea of millions of years became really popular. And so at that point, the scientists said, well, hey, you theologians, started over in England, worked its way over here. You theologians, we've proved millions of years, so you've got to squeeze this into your Bible somehow. You've got to make it fit, because this is true. And so many theologians, with the best of intentions, mind you, so, okay, somehow, if millions of years is true, then the Bible's got to say it so people will believe the Bible and believe about Jesus. So they had good intentions, but horrific consequences. And so with this in mind, they were trying to make the Bible square with this new idea of millions of years. And they started doing something called eisegesis. Say that with me. Eisegesis. And this is the opposite of exegesis. This is how we are not to read the Bible. Eisegesis is when you take an idea... That's not natural to the text you're reading and try to squeeze it into the text because you think it should say what you're thinking. That's called eisegesis. And we should never do that with God's word. His word is the authority. But because of this practice of eisegesis, it was at that time, early 1800s, that some people started to say, well, maybe we can reinterpret those days in Genesis. And maybe those days in Genesis aren't real days. Maybe those days are long periods of time. You got something called the day-age theory. You guys ever heard about that? Some form of the day-age theory. It's very popular. It's been around for a really long time. And um, it's funny. People tend to think it's a new idea. It's not. It's very, very old. And typically, to support this particular view, most people will quote what verse? You've heard this too. Very good. All right. Maybe you said it like I did a long time ago. Absolutely. I'll say, hey, look, over in 2 Peter 3.8. That with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. See, a day didn't have to be like a, a literal day. It could be a period of time. I said, well, okay, hold on. 
My first suggestion is this. Let's read the rest of the verse. You ready? And a thousand years is like one day. Kind of cancels that out, doesn't it? And then plus notice the context of this verse. Does this verse have anything to do with the days in Genesis? Not at all. This verse, the context is uh, Peter writing to believers who are being persecuted, endure during persecution, and God's being patient. Why? He does not want any to perish. So he's being patient to God. Days like a thousand years. He's outside of time. He's not bound by time because God made time and lives outside of it. That's how awesome our God is. This verse has nothing to do with day, especially I understand it in Genesis. It's about a characteristic of God who's not bound by time. He's being patient. Let's just trust him. That's the context. Nothing to do with Genesis. And then here's what's really interesting to me is that why is it that Christians only take this sort of thinking and try to use it to re- reinterpret Genesis with? Why don't they take this same sort of idea and apply it to other biblical accounts? They're going to be consistent, right? Maybe the account of Joshua and Jericho. Maybe he marched around that city for thousands or millions of years. <laughs> Days like a thousand years, right? Why not? Why not apply it to Jonah and the fish? He's in there for three days. Days like a thousand years, three thousand years. Nobody does that, right? <laughs> On a more serious note, you're quoting to me a New Testament verse. It makes sense to apply it in a New Testament context. What about Jesus in the tomb? He's in the tomb for three days. A day is like a thousand years. He's still in the tomb. Of course not, right? Ludicrous. We only do it in Genesis. Why? Trying to squeeze man's ideas into God's word. That's why. And then there are other problems, too, if those days are long periods of time. Uh, Problems like this one. If day three was a long period of time, here's the issue. Plants were made on day three. Now, if that's millions and millions of years, here's the problem. The sun was not made until day four. Now you've got plants living for millions of years without the sun. That would take supernatural intervention. That would be a problem. And then birds and bees weren't made till day five to pollinate the plants, so they're living for millions of years without those things either. Again, that will require supernatural intervention. Lots of problems with this idea. We could go on. But then some will say, okay, maybe those days are days, but maybe we can squeeze the millions of years in between a gap of some sort. You heard of that? You've got the gap theory, different versions of the gap theory, very popular notion. Invented by Thomas Chalmers a long time ago, 1804. It's in the Schofield Reference Bible. Again, a whole lot of acceptance there, but it doesn't work for a whole lot of reasons. It doesn't work because the text doesn't allow for it. Grammatical structure does not allow for that. We saw it earlier. And actually, if you look at the text, it's interesting. A lot of people try to put it in different places, but the biggest place are different versions. But the biggest place is here. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And you read it right there in the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sound familiar? And then it says this, And the earth was without form and void. Now, the natural context of this verse in English and in the original Hebrew is that verse 2 is describing verse 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. What did they look like? They were without form and void. And guess what he's doing throughout the days? He's forming a feeling throughout those days. So verse 2 is describing verse 1. That's the English translation. That's the correct Hebrew understanding based on the context. But the gap theorist says, no, I don't really like that. Maybe that word was, it shouldn't be was, it should be became. So God made the heavens and the earth and they became without form of void. How did they become without form of void? Well, they will suggest this is when the devil fell. And you have a Luciferian flood at that time that kills a pre-Adamite race of soulless hominids. Any of those things in the Bible, by the way? Not a one. 
And that's why they try to squeeze in the fall loose for these sorts of issues. This is why we find these eight men fossil so forth and so on. That is what they will argue. But, of course, the text does not allow for this. The context does not allow for this. And you're importing ideas into Scripture. Plus, we've quoted Exodus 20 already. But, again, for in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He made everything in six days, not spaced out over millions of years, no gaps, six 24-hour days, very clear from the context. And there are other problems we'll deal with later on. And then Darwin comes along, popularizes evolution, and some say, well, maybe God used evolution. And you have something called theistic evolution, very popular today with organizations like Biologos and others. And I say, God just used it. Just put millions of years in the Bible. That makes it square with the idea of evolution. But it does not. Their orders of development are polar opposites. We could be here all day on this. I'll show you a couple quick ones. Evolution says the sun came first before the earth. The Bible says the earth was made first before the sun made on day four. Evolution teaches the earth was a hot molten mass originally. The Bible says God made the earth covered by water. And we just keep going down the line. The Bible says the oceans came before the land. Evolution has the opposite. And the, uh, the Bible says land plants were developed first. Evolution says marine life came first. It just keeps going down the line. Polar opposites, just adding millions of years to the biblical text, does not make it fit or square with evolution. doesn't work. And then here's the thing. I'm skimming because there's so much I'm trying to cover in this talk. We have books on this. But I want to point out a couple of major themes. Whichever theory you're, you're trying to adhere to, whether it's gap theory or day-age theory or progressive creation, cosmic temple, there's another one, framework hypothesis. It's just meta-narrative. It's not symbolic. It's not real history. All these theories have one major common factor every single time. They have one goal. Guess what it is? To squeeze millions of years into God's word. That's the goal every single time. And then here's something else we've noticed as a ministry talking to theologians and seminary professors and uh, pastors all over the place, all over the world. We've noticed something. Many, if not most, will say, we agree that the plain, literal understanding of Genesis based on the context is that those days are indeed six regular 24-hour days. We agree that's the best understanding of the text. But then many will go on to say this fatal statement. But they'll say, that can't be what it means. Guess why? Millions of years. Every single time. And here's the deal. If we say this is what the word of God says, but that's not what it means, we just said this word is fallible and contains errors. And how can we trust any of it? If you can't trust the middle or the beginning, why trust the middle or the end? And so this is where the attack is happening today. I want to show you a few examples of how many Christian leaders are compromising in this area to show you just how rampant this compromise is. I'm going to quote a few people. And as I quote these people, please understand my heart in this. Uh, I do this every time with fear and trepidation. I'm not trying to attack these people. Many of these men I respect. They're godly men. They love the Lord. I believe every person about to quote loves Jesus, loves the word of God, loves the gospel, loves the lost. And have done, they've done incredible things for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. But they've missed it here. And what we're really attacking is not them, but this compromised teaching they're embracing that's undermining biblical authority. And there's only one perfect theologian. Amen? And we go to his word as the standard. So that's why we're doing this, just to show how this is an epidemic, and we need to get right the ship, get back to God's word as our authority. So here's the first one. Gleason Archer, if you study biblical theology and stuff, you probably recognize that name. Uh, did some wonderful things that since passed away. Uh, wonderful teacher in many respects, but missed it here. 
uh, just one example, for a superficial reading or from a superficial reading of Genesis 1, you will get the impression creation took place in six 24-hour days. But this runs counter to modern scientific research that indicates the Earth is billions of years old. Or William Lane Craig. You might recognize that name from Talbot School of Theology. Uh, recently, he was asking an interview about this issue. Listen to what he says. How old is the world? Best estimates today are around 13.7 billion years or so. Now, this is good. You see, I, I, this is a position I can embrace because there are people who, who will sit here and say, no, it's six and a half thousand years old. Um, that, that is not a tenable position? I don't think it's plausible. Uh, the, the arguments that I give are right in line with mainstream science. Uh, I'm not bucking up against mainstream science okay. in presenting these arguments. Rather, I'm going with the flow of what contemporary cosmology and astrophysics uh, supports. Going with the flow of secular interpretation of present-day evidence based on the assumption God's word is not right about the past, whether he recognizes it or not. Or this one from Dr. John Walton. Well, is now at Wheaton College, was at Moody Bible Institute. He recently said this for Biologos. In my book, I've tried to show that the, uh, the account in Genesis 1 is not intended to be an account of material origins. If that's so, the Bible has no narrative of material origins. And if that's so, then we don't have to defend the Bible's narrative of material origins against a, a scientific narrative because the Bible doesn't offer one. In that case, we can say, well, if the Bible doesn't offer us a narrative, we can look to science for the narrative. A couple of things to think about really quickly. If the biblical history is not real history and it did not happen, I have some questions. Where did man come from? Where did sin come from? Why is death the consequence for sin if the first Adam didn't sin, bringing death and suffering into this world? And why is Jesus called the last Adam, Jesus Christ? And you recognize only descendants of Adam can be saved. Jesus became part of us, our blood, to pay the debt we only he could pay. Only descendants of Adam can be saved. But if evolution is true, are we all descendants of Adam? Tons of theological ramifications if you embrace this sort of thinking. Or, of course, you might know John Piper and love so much of what he does and what he teaches. Such a rock in so many different ways and a wonderful biblical teacher, uh, no doubt about it. But unfortunately, again, just showing the prevalence of this, missing the mark on this particular issue. Or he might take Salehammer's view, which is where I uh, feel at home, namely that what's going on here is all of creation happened uh, to prepare the land for man in, in uh, verse 1 beginning he made the heavens and the earth that's everything and then you go day by day and he's preparing the land he's not bringing new things into existence he's preparing the land and causing things to grow and separating out water and earth and then when it's all set and prepared he creates and puts man there and so that that has the advantage of saying that the earth is billions of years old if it wants to be whatever science says it is it is uh Whatever science says it is, it is. And I think he, like so many others, have fallen into this particular trap. They've thought to themselves, most likely, I don't know their hearts or their thoughts, but I'm just assuming here to a certain degree, because I see so many do it. They think, well, if I embrace operational science today, the technology and the medicine and so forth, what's been produced by scientists in these fields, then I must also accept what the scientists say about history now, I reckon that historical science is a totally different field altogether. But they've concluded, if I embrace this, I've got to embrace this. They put the two together, and they don't go together. 
This one's based on assumptions, based on worldview. This is, of course, in the present, operational, can be done in the present, but they conflate the two. Another example of this, Andy Stanley might recognize the name. Uh, his father does a wonderful ministry as well. Andy Stanley has like a 40,000-member church, I think, in the Atlanta area. I'll show a couple of quotes from him very quickly. Before I show them, very, I want to say this was part of a six-part uh, sermon series he did, six different sermons on this issue. It's called Who Needs God? It was geared towards the non-believers, those who walked away from the faith. And um, the, I watched all six uh, sermons in detail, stopped, took copious notes, and these are in context, just if you're wanting to see it later on if you like. But here's quote number one. We really believe, whether you take it literally or figuratively, whatever, if we really believe that God is the creator of the universe, that all time, space, and matter, all time, space, and matter were created by God, and we take seriously what science has told us, that it all began with a singularity, that's what it's referred to, right before, there's not such thing as before the Big Bang, because before is time, and time began. So if we go to the singularity that was the Big Bang, that unfurled the universe, that continues to expand, First, he talks faster than me. That's impressive. All right. Uh, but he's basically embracing the Big Bang. And then he goes on to say this statement. And it says a couple of other places as well in different ways. But here it is. And the moment your theology conflicts, conflicts with the discoveries of science, you have a theological problem, not a science problem. And to be fair to him, that's what the other ones were saying as well. They were. They didn't say it as bluntly, but that's the same idea. And again, they've said this. If scientists write about this stuff or hear about operational stuff, then it must be right about historical stuff. Those are two different things. Think about it like this. What if you knew someone was a great mechanic, right? He was fair. He was honest. He knew cars inside and out. He knew how they operated. He was awesome. So you took your car to him all the time. He did great work. Referred him. He did fantastic work. Consistent, not to out of the park. One day you're talking to your mechanic, and after you get done with your uh, little talk towards the end, the uh, mechanic's like, hey, um, do you even know how cars were formed? And you're like, no, you're like, this would be good. It's some kind of history lesson, right? The mechanic goes on to say, well, did you know what happened is uh, millions of years ago, uh, there were volcanic eruptions and rocks formed, and then metal formed as a result of that. Later on, somehow these minerals kind of mixed together or whatever. And then a tornado came through all these rocks and the rocks hit each other and banged together. And this, these cars started to form. Over time, they got more complicated, but that, that's how they formed. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> we can agree the mechanic was a fantastic mechanic. He understood how it operated. No problem. But just because he's good at its operation, if he thinks this over here about its origin, does that make his conclusion about its origin Right. Not at all. These are two different categories. Operation does not explain origination. This is based on your worldview. And then, guys, most important of all, we could talk in detail about how the text doesn't allow for millions of years, the grammatical structure doesn't allow for it. But most important of all, I mentioned this last session, but we'll repeat it one more time. It's so important. If you try to squeeze man's millions of years into the Bible, the Bible does not allow for this theologically. Biggest issue of all. You cannot do it theologically because, again, the Bible is clear that God made a perfect creation. Who wrecked this world? We did in our sin. We wrecked this world. It was man's sin that brought death, the enemy, into this world. And because of that, all of creation is groaning in pain. And that's why we all look forward to the coming consummation. Amen? When Jesus gets rid of death and there's no more death, no more suffering like it was in the beginning. But if there was death and suffering before sin, then what's Jesus going to return the world to? Back more death and suffering? Another big problem. 
Now, here's the biggest problem of all. If you're trying to squeeze millions of years into the Bible, no matter which way you try to do it, you are putting death before sin. Theologically impossible undermines the gospel. Here it is one more time, a little different picture. If you've got millions of years, you've got death before sin. If you've got death before sin, then man's sin has no effect on creation. Death was already around. Death was part of God's original very good creation. He called death and cancer very good. Praise our God. That's what you're concluding. And here's the thing. If there's death before sin, then death is not the consequence or the payment for sin. It's just always been around. And if death is not the payment for sin, then Jesus' death does not pay our sin debt. And again, it just annihilates the foundation for the gospel. And I know we don't mean to, but you can still have great intentions to get the worst of consequences. Amen? You ever been there before? You ever had good intentions but got really bad consequences? I know I've been there. One story to kind of wrap up as we end up in the session. True story. Um, man, a long time ago now, maybe almost 20 years ago, I was a, a child care director. Uh, and uh, one day I came into the building. And all the kids ran up to me, hey, Mr. Osmond, so happy to see me. And I kind of realized I needed to build a relationship with these kids. And so I wanted to bond with them. So I said, hey, guys, let's go to the park. So all the kids, they're happy. They're like, yeah. So all the counselors, we all go to the park. We get there. The kids fan out. They're all running away. Counselors go watch them. And then some kids see me and they're like, hey, Mr. Osborne, will you push us on the merry-go-round? I thought, perfect. I came to bond with kids. We're going to bond. Let's do this. Yeah, hop on. They hop on. I start pushing the merry-go-round. What are the first words out of their mouth? Faster, right? And so I keep pushing it faster. I assume they want to keep getting faster. It just makes sense to me. And after a while, they're hanging on for dear life. Now, actually, what they had done, this is a true story, by, uh, mind you, they had actually scooted up into the middle of the merry-go-round to hold on to the inner bars. Remember doing that when you were a kid so you can go faster? That's what they were doing. And so as I'm pushing it faster and faster, they're not saying a word anymore. They're just hanging on. Um, something clicked. I guess because I'm just a, I'm a guy, you know. My motivation changed from bonding with these kids to how fast can I make this thing go? <laughs> true story. And so I started giving that thing everything I had, went everything. And it wasn't safety regulated. It's back in the day, right? They're, they're you know, slowing that thing down. And that thing was moving. And then I took a step back to admire my work. I was impressed with myself. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> and then a thought hit me. Can you spin this thing fast enough to where the force of the spin will suck those kids out of the merry-go-round? No sooner had I thought that. Again, true story. One kid starts to lose his grip and shoots out of the merry-go-round like a rocket. Not kidding. As he's coming out, the bar comes around, hits him on the head on the way out. He's spinning like a helicopter towards my knees. I jump over this poor kid, right? I look back, he skips on the ground like a rock on water. Doom, 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 doom. I look up, one kid shoots out this way, hits the ground, hits a tree. There's one kid left. I got to save one, right? I throw my hands in. One kid was still on. He was crying. The picture's not accurate, all right? This kid's crying. I take a quick second to gather myself. I think to myself, all right, that's it. I've had a good run. I am going to jail. <laughs> I just killed two kids. There's no way. There's no way they're all right. Oh, and I ran and checked on the kids, and I learned two major things that day. My first lesson was this. Kids are amazingly tough. What are they made out of, right? It's incredible. They are. They really are tough. The one kid had a huge knot on his head, understandably so, but he was fine. 
And then the second thing I realized was this. You can have the best of intentions and still get the worst of consequences. And guys, that's what happens when we try to squeeze man's ideas into God's word. And I really suggest with as much love as I can share with you guys, we as a church, many Christians, we have an Jesus problem. We're trying to squeeze man's ideas into God's word. We're undermining biblical authority. We're seeing the class of the Christian worldview, both outside and inside the church as a result. We've got to stand on God's word. And truly, guys, it is time that we say with Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we will lovingly challenge you and ourselves. Let's start a new Reformation. In honor of celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation, what if we as a church, what if we as Christians, we stood unified on the authority of God's word from the very first verse? Equipping ourselves in the coming generations to defend the faith by standing boldly on this foundation, showing people, all people, that God's word is true. We could answer their questions and then boldly proclaim the gospel. Might have started a new reformation. Who wants to be part of that? Amen? A stand on God's word. Again, that's what it's all about. Now, guys, I'll freely commit, uh, admit going through this particular talk, I'm trying to squeeze just a thousand different subjects in here. I know it's fast. I know it's skimming the top. we got tons of resources that dive in deep on each one of these subjects. A couple of things I really encourage you to check out for more research, the book Old Earth Creationism on Trial. Really good book, not too thick, why this is so important, why old earth ideas don't work. Done by Dr. Jason Lyle, Tim Chafee, do a great job with it. Great short read on this issue. Check that out. Uh, this book by Ken Ham, one of, our new, one of his newer books, Six Days, goes in a bit deeper. It's about yay thick, and it's really well done. Covers all the same issues in much more detail. You can check that book out just on that topic. The Answers books will deal with these issues. Then have time to talk about distant starlight or other things, but same issues, wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions, really not that hard. And so all those questions are dealt with in these books, whether it's radiometric dating, whether it's uh, potassium argon or carbon-14 dating or distant starlight, whatever, rock layers, all dealt with in those books. Same thing for the teens and kids as well. By the way, I will mention this. We sold out of quick answers to tough questions, and we also sold out of the 10-minute Bible journey, and we sold out of the book The Lie and the book Already Gone. Quit buying stuff. What are you guys doing? This is awesome. Um, so, no, actually, keep buying stuff, but the... Uh, to equip yourselves, and I'll tell you, anything we sold out of, you can back order and still get the conference special, all right? And we'll ship it to your house for free. So in other words, if you're doing like the five for 55, you can get, you know, these two books right here as part of your five. Get your other three items, pay for it here, and we'll ship the other two books to you for free. So if we brought it, we run out, you can back order it. So take advantage of that. Again, these are phenomenal for that. We're not doing a dinosaur talk this time around. It's always fun when we do. It's a great talk, a lot of fun. Uh, kids love it, but kids have issues on that. So do adults. Lots of great books on dinosaurs. Check those out at the table. This one's great for kids. Got one for adults, also really good. The Rock Lakes and Fossils, another different talk. That's a great talk as well. We've got answers about that. What about the canyons and rock formation and fossil formations? Got this for kids and adults. Check out the resources there. Tons of stuff on all this. Again, if you've got any questions about any of it, let me know. Uh, and Ken's... Uh, Foundations Curriculum, it's a 12-week uh, walkthrough, or not walkthrough, a 12-week study of the biblical foundations of this issue, uh, 12, 30-minute lessons, really well done, spoken by Ken, questions ready to go. Uh, he does a talk on six days in this package as well. You can check that out at the table. So lots of stuff back there. Take advantage of the YouTube special, the magazine special, the free DVDs that come with the magazine. Two other quick things, we'll wrap up. This chart, this is just great for learning, period, great for families, great for homeschooling. Big book of history. Starts from the beginning of history. By the way, quick little side note. No such thing as prehistory. 
we have history from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where it starts. So no, it's pretty, anyway, different note. Different thing. But this book, fantastic, walks you through all history from the beginning to today. And it covers all the major events of history for the last 6,000 years. Really kind of cool to see. Great for, uh, again, homeschooling for kids. And then if you really like history, we've got this one called the Adams Chart. This one stretches out 25 feet long. Covers every human civilization from the beginning to the early 1900s. It's incredible. If you like history, it's like, a, it's like crack, all right? So if you like that sort of stuff, it's awesome. You can check that out. It's, I got snuck that in there. I didn't know if I could. But anyway, um, but no, it really is great for history, great for equipping yourselves, great for homeschooling, great for learning. If you like history, check that out. Those are at the tables as well. Sign up for the free newsletter. comes out again monthly. Uh, there's a calendar in the back where speakers will be. You can find out where we're going to be, and you can use that as a tool to help others uh, catch an event. And then use the website. And if you're coming from a sister church or just a different church, a different area, uh, we as a ministry have multiple speakers who travel and speak all over the place on these different issues. And you can ask me about bringing a speaker to your church or to your event. Be glad to help in any way I can there. And we'll, we'll take a break after my last quote here, but we'll come back and we'll talk about Really important issue in our day and age. Man, this is a talk our culture needs to hear and understand and embrace. And if it did, what a difference it would be. How do we explain to different people groups if we all come from Adam and Eve and the consequences of which idea we embrace? Really, really important. And I'll leave us with this one last quote. And I'll close in prayer and we'll be done and we'll take a little break. This is a quote from a hymn writer who is quoting about what Martin Luther went through during the Reformation, not by Luther, but about Luther. Very uh, relevant to what we talked about today thus far. Hymn writer says this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. Wherever the battle rages wherever the battle rages it is there the loyalty of the soldier is proved and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point let's recognize where the attack is taking place today and let's not flinch and stand on god's word amen Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a chance to come together and fellowship and study and to see you honored and glorified. Lord, may you help us to get some rest in between these sessions, to uh, rest our ears from all the talking, everything everybody's hearing, to kind of, just, kind of absorb some of this, but also, most importantly, to be receptive to what you would say to us, that your spirit would move, you would mold us into your image, draw people to yourself. God, we love you, we praise you. May you be honored and glorified in this time because it's all about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.